uh, told Apostle Lafayette, I almost changed my message after what I heard. It was so good. I want to talk to you. I want to read a scripture and then I'll share with you what we're going to talk about. It's a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. Corinth was one of the most um, fascinating churches that, that Paul was involved in and founded. It was, lit, it was uh, in a part of Greece where Greeks were very uh, philosophical, very intellectual. Um, and this was a church that was in outwardly a very spiritual church. The gifts of the Spirit were flowing there in abundance. In fact, some of the most important understanding we have about the gifts of the Spirit come from this letter further on into it. But they were a church that was so so confident in their spirituality that they were so proud that they, at one point, I believe, wouldn't let Paul back in the church because he wasn't spiritual enough for them. So Paul writes this letter to them, and we're going to read in 1 Corinthians 3, just a little bit here. And Paul says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as carnal. Now the word carnal, we can hear and think, means sinner. But the word carnal just means dominated by our flesh. We see everything and evaluate everything simply by our natural senses and through our, through our flesh. And so Paul says, because you're so dominated by your flesh and you see things so much through your flesh, I cannot deal with you as very spiritual people because spiritual things are not perceived or carried out through our flesh. I fed you with milk and not with solid food. For until now, you're not able to receive it. And even now you're still not able, for you are still carnal, still very fleshly. For where there's envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? The Amplified says, behaving like ordinary unchanging, unchanged men. This is not a compliment. That means Paul is saying that he has an expectation of them to be something different than mere men. Because God has changed them into something that's very different. And because of that, God expected something from them different than from ordinary men. Now God has placed us as men in different arenas, in our family, in our church, in our job, in our community. He's put us in places of responsibility because we're there to bring his influence and his kingdom's influence into those arenas, into those areas. God puts us in places where there's challenges. I was a friend of mine that's a pastor said, I, I, I love dealing with challenges. And I'm thinking, what's wrong with you? <laughs> and he says, because... That's why God puts us there, because there are challenges, there are oppositions, and God has put us there because he has a solution to those challenges and to those oppositions. And God has put you into situations in your family where you may be having, going through a challenge in your marriage right now. You may be going through a challenge with your kids as they're either smaller or as they get grown and they're, and they're going through the difficult teenage era and you wonder what in the world has happened to them, or maybe they're grown and out of the home. You, you know, I used to think that when our kids grow, grew up and left the home, that all those things were over. They just get multiplied. <laughs> you can't pick them up anymore, but you still got to deal with the concerns and the worries and all those things about them. So at every phase of our life, whether you're a parent of a newborn child, 
whether your children are still in the age of growing up or whether they've left home and matured or have their own families and their own children, we still are there to have a, re- have a responsibility to have an influence in their lives. And many times at this kind of culture we're living in and the tremendous pressure that everybody seems to be under and it's getting worse and worse and worse, it almost gets to, it gets to the point where the, these issues of life just seem insurmountable. And I don't know about you, but I've had as a pastor and as a father and as a husband and as a grandfather, sometimes it's like they just all pile in on you and it's like, I don't know, I get hit from every side and I just look at all of these things and it's almost like, I can't do this. It's just too much. And, and you know, you want to quit, you want to give up. And, but that's not what we're there to do. And here's the key. How you see yourself and how you see God and how you see these cha- challenges will determine whether you can fulfill what God wants to do through you in each one of the areas of life. These challenges can be overwhelming. Again, family issues, your children, their marriage, your, uh, can be strongholds that just seem like they can't possibly be overcome. And then you look at what's going on in the, in the world we live in right now, and it's getting worse faster and faster and faster, just in the time between when Apostle Scales was here last time. The, things, the, 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 the whole uh, dynamics of the things in the world around us are changing dramatically. And it can just be overwhelming as Christians. Can we ever stand against this onslaught that's against us? Can we stand? Which is why coming together as a community is so critical. Because we cannot stand against this alone. We cannot survive against this alone. I've shared this with my church a number of times. It was a time when Apostle Scales was here on one of our Sunday meetings. And I just felt in my spirit to say, there's coming a day when all we're going to have is Jesus and each other. And I think we're about there. We're just about there. But it can be so overwhelming. It can be the pressure against us that how in the world can we handle that? And as men, we have a kind of an inbuilt tendency that comes from our fallen nature. And that's men's way of handling these challenges is essentially to deny them. As we pretend they're not there. And we can do that in many different ways. We can just avoid them. Or we can lose ourselves in work. We can lose ourselves in play, sports, and all kinds of other things. And there's nothing wrong with sports. There's nothing wrong with play. But if you're doing that to lose, to avoid facing the challenges of your life, then that's not healthy and it's destructive. And we see this because we look at ourselves in terms of, I'm not adequate to handle this. It's overwhelming to me. I don't know, I don't know what to do. And all of those statements have to do with me and what I can handle. And none of those statements have to do with God and what God's able to handle. I want to read to you when Jesus stepped into his public ministry. And Jesus was here also, as we are, to bring the influence of God's kingdom into the world. Obviously, he came, he came to die and to pay for our sins. But he could have done that in one day. But he was born among men. He was raised among men. And in about 30 years of age, he stepped into a public ministry that lasted about three, three and a half years. And why did he do that? Well, one of the reasons, I believe, was to begin to sow the seeds of God's kingdom and the influence of God's kingdom among men that could then write letters, and write, which we now have as the Gospels, and then it would take it on into the epistles we have. So Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God and give us a taste and experience of the kingdom of God. 
And so at the beginning of his ministry, he'd already started, but one of the first things he did was he went home, back into his home church. And it says in Luke chapter 4, verse 17, he says, And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he opened the book, he found the place where it was written. And these were, uh, uh, my own belief is that Jesus, as a member of this synagogue, had probably read these words before. But now when he reads the words, it's very different. Because he starts with this word out of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Remember where he's just come from. He's just been going to the Jordan River. John the Baptist has baptized him. And the Holy Spirit has descended upon him. And now he's empowered by the Spirit of God. So this verse is now literally true now. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he has anointed me. Why? He's anointed me, first of all, to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty or freedom to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those that are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus is saying, the Spirit of God is upon me. He has anointed me for a purpose, and it has set people free, people that God cares for, set people free from the bondages and the challenges and the works of Satan in this fallen world have come into their lives to steal, kill, and destroy. So Jesus is here to begin to bring that freedom and that change. And he was living in a, coming in a world that was just as dark as the world we're in right now. Just, we sometimes forget that. It was just as bad. It was, it was just as ungodly. It was ruled, uh, Israel was ruled at that time by Rome, a very powerful nation that controlled a good part of the world. It was called the Iron Hand, the Iron Fist of Rome. That's how they governed. And, but Jesus came to bring deliverance and freedom to the people that he came in contact with. And he did it by the anointing of the Spirit, Spirit of God. Jesus wasn't overwhelmed by the obstacles. He wasn't overwhelmed by the situations that looked so overwhelming to him. And we're going to see at why he wasn't. Acts 10.38 says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth to, to, uh, to, uh, to do good, to heal all those that were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So he came to bring deliverance. And in the same way, we are part of Christ. We are the body of Christ. And he wants to work through us in our families, in our job. And wherever, wherever your world is that God places you, he wants to also bring deliverance and freedom. But we say, well, that was Jesus. Of course he had confidence he could do that. But who are we? We are the body of Christ, and we are anointed by the same Spirit to bring the same deliverances. So what I want to spend the time we have this morning looking at, I want to look at several examples in the Bible of, of men or people that had a, that same kind of responsibility. And we're going to look at an example of the people that failed in it and why they failed. And we're going to look at an example of two quick men who were placed in a similar situation and how they succeeded. And looking at what they did differently, I think we can see how we can succeed where others have failed. First example I want to look at is the nation of Israel when they come out of Egypt. Israel is God's called people. They are God's, his, his, his people that he has formed for himself. And they've gone, into, they've gone into Israel, into Egypt. God sent them down there because there was a famine in the land. But they overstayed their need to be there. 
and, and I don't have time to get into why that happened and how that happened. But after about 400 years, they begin to cry out to God for deliverance. God sends Moses a deliverer and delivers them out. And God's plan is to bring them out of bondage in Egypt. And believe, remember, Egypt represents the world, and God has brought us out of the bondage of this world. And God's plan was to take them into a land that he promised to give them, and he was going to use that as a base of operations so that Israel could have a fate, an effect on the world. In order to do that, they had to go through an area called the wilderness. And the Bible tells us it's a, it's a journey of about 10 days to two weeks. But God knew his people enough to know he couldn't take them on that route because they would see enemies along the route and they'd want to go back into Egypt. So instead, God had to take them on a longer route. And he brings them up after almost a year to the edge of this land that God has promised to give them. Now, God told them back in Genesis chapter 12, I am give to, through Abraham, I am going to give this land to you. In Exodus, God tells them that when you get to this land, there are going to be enemies in this land, inhabitants in this land. In fact, in Exodus 12, 3, 8, he names them. So it's not as if God doesn't know that there are enemies in there. God tells them that there are enemies in there. And in, we're going to look quickly at Deuteronomy chapter 8. Because what God does is, everything God does is purposeful. Amen? That's pretty weak. Everything God does is purposeful. God is training us. Philippians tells us that God is at work in us. God is at work in us. God is at work in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. So this journey through the wilderness, although it took them, this first generation, longer than it needed to, God didn't waste that time. He used that time to be training them and preparing them for what was to come. So we're just going to read just a little bit down through Deuteronomy 8. Because it is this stage, this first generation has failed. And now a second generation is about to enter this land. And God is reviewing for them what happened with the first generation and why they didn't make it. Every commandment which I give you today, you must be careful to observe that you may let... Let me... Yeah. That you may be careful to observe that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord your God swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you by the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So how did he humble them and test them? Verse 3. He humbled you and allowed you to go hungry. Now that doesn't mean he starved them. But he fed you with manna which you did not know nor did your fathers know that ye, he may make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What's that all about? They're now going on a, through a desert, basically. There's no Walmart. There's no 7-Eleven. There's no Sam's Club. There's no Peapod you can call and they'll deliver your food. There's nothing there. And, and they begin to look back and wish they still had the food that they had in Egypt and so they begin to complain, and God calls them out. Every morning, there's a dew that falls in the morning. And they go and gather, God says, you go and gather that up. And, 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 and manna just means, what is this stuff? They didn't recognize what it was. And they would need it, and they could bake it into bread. 
and they would have enough bread for the day. But God says, don't collect two days' worth, because if you collect two days' worth, the second day is going to rot. So, except on the Sabbath, except on, on the day before the Sabbath, then you're to collect two days, because you're not to go out and collect it on the Sabbath, because that would be work. And when he's telling this second generation here, the reason I did that is I was training your, your, your fathers to trust me every day. I was training your fathers that every day I'm feeding you and it's coming from me and me alone. So that you can't go and see when we store it up, we don't trust God's going to give it tomorrow. So I've got to make sure I'm going to have it tomorrow because I don't know whether God's going to... This is why Jesus says, don't be anxious about tomorrow. So when we worry about tomorrow, what we're saying is, God, you, you, I know you got me alive today. I know you got me through yesterday, but I'm not so sure about tomorrow. So God was training them. And the fact that on the sixth day they could collect two days' worth and it didn't rot showed that God was in control of that. It was not some phenomenon of nature. And so God was training them. And what was he training them? That man does not live by bread alone, but by the natural things of life. That man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God wants us to grow and mature to the place where we literally trust him for everything as our source with a confidence and a boldness that I don't care what it... Remember, the Corinthians were carnal. That means they, they, their, will, their security and how confident they were were based on the circumstances of their life. So when things were going great, they were confident as Christians. When things were not going great, their lives were falling apart. And that's what too many of us are like. When, when, the bills, when there's enough money to pay the bills... When our wife loves us and she's smiling, when all the kids sit around the table and say, oh, Dad, you're a wonderful dad, life's great. But that doesn't last long, does it? I saw uh, uh, years ago my wife on on our day off was going through some shop she likes to go through and they had these guest towels and they they were embroidered with sayings. And and one of the sayings on there was um, family issues, the gift that keeps on giving. And it seems when you've got a, a family of more than one child or more than, it's like one of them gets set over here and the next thing you know, this one's off. It's like the plenty spinning the plates. And sometimes it feels like that. And, and when that's what's governing our confidence, when that's what's affecting whether we're going to step up and do what's right, then we're carnal. Just like the Corinthians. We're gov- deciding what we can do and who we are by the circumstances. And God says, I was training you not to live by the circumstances, but I was training you to live by trusting every word that I said. Let's go to uh, Numbers 13, and we're going to see how well they did with this. Numbers 13 is going back now to the first generation. And they're now come through that almost a year And they're on the edge of this promised land. And they send, Moses sends 12 spies in. And they come back with a report. And we're going to look at that report. We're going to start in verse 26. Numbers 13, 26. And now they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran and Kadesh. They brought back word of them to all the congregation and they showed them the fruit of the land. God had promised them that I'm taking you into a land 
that flows with milk and honey. In other words, it's a land of abundance. And they brought back to them fruit of the land. And they told them, it doesn't show in here in what we're going to read, but the, the grapes clusters were so big, they had to put them on a pole carried by two men. So they're coming back with physical evidence that what God said about the land was true. It was a land of great prosperity and blessing. Verse 28. Nevertheless, that word gets more people in trouble. The people who dwell in the land are strong. Their cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak. That's a giant. We'll see that in a minute. And the Amalekites dwell in the land in the south, and the Hittites, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites in the, in the mountains, and the Canaanites, and all the otherites dwell by the sea along the banks. Now these were the same people God back in Exodus told them were dwelling there. So God has told them, go take this land. God has told them that this is a land that is filled with blessing and prosperity. God has told them there are enemies in this land. Here they are, and I will be with you, and I will devour them before you. So they've already been told this, but they're choosing to believe what they see and not what... They're choosing to believe the threats that they can see and hear and not the words that God has promised them. And Caleb, verse 30, quieted the people before Moses said, let us go up at once and take possession. In chapter 14, God says about Caleb, he had a different spirit about him. But verse 31, but the men who had gone up with him said, we're not able to go up against the people for they're stronger than we are. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report. I think the King James is an evil report of the land which they spied out. And the land which we've gone through as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. Well, that's not true. The inhabitants were still there. It's amazing when you get off into fear and it starts talking to you. Suddenly you'll say things that make no sense at all. But fear is not rational. And it's like a fence. It just grows and it grows and it grows. And it's contagious just like a fence. That's what's happening here. It devours the inhabitants. And all the, pe- all the people, all the people, notice how when you're in fear, you speak in these absolutes, all and never. All the people are of great stature. And there we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak. They came from, uh, uh, they came from the giants. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. So the problem here is they're seeing the giants. They're seeing the problems. They're seeing the challenges. And they're evaluating what they're going to be able to do by how the giants look to them and how they look to themselves compared to the giants. Notice, we're like grasshoppers in our own sight. Now the interesting thing, we're not going to turn there, but if you were to go over, if you were to go over to Joshua 2, you're going to see the story of when the next generation gets in there, they send in two spies, and the prostitute Rahab takes them in, and she basically says, we couldn't understand why you didn't come in earlier, because we were all held up at our houses, because we were scared of you, because we heard what God did for you when he delivered you out of Egypt, what God did for you when you came against these others. 
They had greater faith. Their, now listen, listen carefully. The anim, their enemies had greater faith in what God would do than God's own people did. And I suggest to you the devil has greater awareness of what God can do to him than his church does of what God can do to him. But the key was how they saw themselves determined how they saw the giants. And they said, we were like grasshoppers in their sight. They didn't know that. And therefore, we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. So how we see ourselves and how we see our enemy determines what we will do. Let's go to Judges 6. I want to look quickly at another one. And this is, Judges is written in a time when Israel did not have any consistent leader. Up until then, there were patriarchs, there were prophets, uh, there were kings. And this is a stage in Israel's life history when it has no consistent strong ruler. And there was a pattern that develops at this stage. And in this pattern, what would happen is Israel would backslide because they had no strong leader. And then enemy would come in. And they would come in waves and just devour everything. And then Israel would repent, get things right, and God would send a leader to them, a judge, which is why this is called judges, who lead them for a while. They would begin to prosper again. And once they started prospering, they started taking their eyes off God again and on the prosperity. And then they would begin to, the enemy would come in again and it would destroy them again. So we're going to pick this up in one of these cycles in chapter 6. And as we pick this up, we're not going to read the beginning of this chapter, but what's happened is we're in another one of these cycles and the Midianites have just come through. They're one of their consistent enemies and they've literally plundered everything. They've taken all the food that they could eat and carry away with them they have and they've destroyed everything else. So when they're gone, the fields are burned, there's nothing left and we're going to pick up with this young man who's hiding in a wine press. Verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the Trebeth tree, which was in Oprah, not Oprah, and that belonged to Joash of the Abrazites, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress. I never saw this before until I was looking at this the other day. You don't thresh wheat in a winepress. You press grapes in a winepress. You thresh wheat outside where it can either throw it up but he's hiding in here because he's found some wheat and he's afraid the Midianites are going to find him and are going to steal the little bit of wheat they have left and kill him. So get this picture. This young man's hiding out. The enemy has just come through to destroy everything. He's hiding out and the angel of the Lord appears to him. Verse 12. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you you mighty man of valor. I mean, what's God thinking here? Is, is God doesn't see this young boy where he is. He's hiding out. He's not some man of valor. He's hiding out. He's afraid. But see, God calls things that be not as though they were. God isn't carnal. God doesn't judge situations based on what he's... Aren't you glad? God doesn't judge us based on what he sees. And so this angel appears and he calls him a mighty man of valor. 
I almost get this image that Gideon must have been looking around and said, who else is in here? And Gideon said to him, I love this, Oh my Lord, because he said, The Lord's with you, almighty man of valor. He says, Oh my Lord, if the Lord's with us, what I want you to see here, how disqualified this young man was. This is not a strong man in his own nature. This is not a mighty man. This is not a man who's confident in himself. He's scared. He's hiding out. And when God appears to him through this angel and says, The Lord's with you, the first thing he's going to do is complain. If the Lord's with us, then why has all this happened to us? Do you ever wonder that? If God's, God, if your word's true, because we're talking about man does not live by bread alone. We're talking about trusting God's word over the circumstances. And, and Gideon say, but it hasn't worked. We've tried to do what you said, and it ha- where have you been if you really are with us? Well, we didn't read the first ten verses, but it explains what had happened. And where are all these miracles which our fathers told us about? Did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? And now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Then the Lord, the angel Lord, turned to him and said, Go this in your mind. Notice he doesn't even respond to the complaint and the question. Go this in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? And I suggest in the situations of your life, God wants to say the same thing to you this morning. Have I not put you in that situation, in that difficult challenge of life? Have I not put you in that overwhelming situation? Because I want to deliver through you, and I am with you and will be with you and in you to do that because you're not mere men in that situation. Verse 15. And so Gideon said to him, Oh, my Lord, his first reaction is, Where have you been? And now he says, Now go and miss your might. And now Gideon's going to begin to give excuses. So he said to him, Oh, my Lord, how can, verse 15, How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. In other words, who am I? Who am I? There's no valor in me. I'm the weakest in my family, and my family is the least in our tribe. Verse 16. And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you. I was thinking about this. We don't have time to, all the times God's called somebody to do something, they say the same thing. Who am I? And God's answer is, I'll be with you. Moses said the same thing. Who am I? God said, I'll be with you. God's answer is never, it's because I'm, you're with me. It's because I will be with you. And I have called you to defeat the Midianites as one man. Then he, Gideon, said to me, Well, if you found favor in my sight, if I found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who's talking with me. Now, this is a legitimate question. So what the angel does, he says, he says uh, Gideon says, don't, don't leave me now. I'm going to perform a sacrifice. So he goes... The angel says, go and prepare the sacrifice. So he makes the meal, the unleavened bread. They put the meat on there, and he lays it on a stone, and the angel touches it with his rod, and fire comes out of the stone and burns up the sacrifice. And so what the angel says, he gives him a test. He says, now what I want you to do, he said, I want you to go and tear down the altar to Baal in your father's household. 
and I want you to take one of his bulls, the second bull, and I want you to offer him as a sacrifice. So what he's beginning to do is train him to step out. Now what I did not tell you is that Israel, when they were killing through the test, failed the test because although they collected the food that God provided for them, they complained every time something went wrong. And the more they complained, the better Egypt looked to them. They were the people that, that cried out to come out of Egypt. And the more they look at the food that God provided for them, and the more they allowed discontent to begin to form up in their hearts, the more they disliked the food God was giving them, and they longed for the food of the world. And there's a scripture in, Rome, in Hebrews 11 that said if they look back too long, they would have found an opportunity to return. So they failed the test. Well, we'll get into that a little later on. Okay. So Gideon's taken through some tests. Now, he's still not there yet because he takes his father's bull and tears down the altar, but he does it at night so nobody can see him. And then what now happens is because, but because he was obedient to do these things, God now uses him to deliver them from the Midianites. The last one I want to look at quickly, and then I want to just talk to how can we apply this in our lives, is in 1 Samuel 17. Several years ago, I went through this whole story. And it's the story of, of David and Goliath. And, and it's a well-known story. You learn in Sunday school if you were in, in young in church. But the, 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 the clarity of what we're talking about here is, is, is so clear. You've got the army of Israel on one side of the valley, and you've got the Philistine army on the other side. And for 40 days, what's happening there is at a standstill. And the, the, Israel, the, the Philistines have a soldier named Goliath. And he's estimated between somewhere between 9 and 12 feet high. And he's covered with the best armor. He has a, he has a buckler, which is a small, like, it's like the Captain America thing. And then he has a shield bearer in front of him, which carries a shield, which is about his height. And he comes out in the morning, and he comes out in the evening and defies Israel and rebukes them and says, basically tells them who they are and basically say, I defy the armies of Saul and I will, I will destroy you. Well, about 40 days into this, David, the youngest boy in his household, comes to visit his brothers who were out there, their soldiers, and David hears this same rebuke. Now, for 40 days, they've been hearing this twice a day. That's 80 times they've been hearing the giant tell them who they are and what he's going to do to them. And they've never answered him. They sat there and listened to us. And this is what we do with the problems in our life. Because your problems talk to you. Your issues talk to you. And they tell you what's going to happen. They tell you you're not enough to overcome them. They tell you you're weak. They remind you of all your failures. You've never done this. They remind you of all. They talk to you. And that's what's going on here. Because the army of Israel, and especially Saul, is evaluating this challenge through their natural senses. They're carnal. They're evaluating their ability to overcome this giant through looking at him and how scary he looks. And now you get this teenage boy shows up. He's not a military commander. He's a shepherd, been taking care of his father's sheep out in, the, out in the wilderness. And he shows up and he hears the same words that the king 
the general has heard. He hears the same words that the trained soldiers have heard, but he hears them through different ears. He sees the same threat and the same giant, but he sees them through different eyes. He doesn't see them through the natural understanding of a giant 9 or 12 feet tall. He sees them through the eyes of the Word of God, which is a covenant that God has with Israel, where God has promised back as far as Abraham, whoever comes against you comes against me. So when David answers, he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? What he's saying is, who is this giant who has no covenant with God? who has come to defy the army of the living God. The soldiers in Saul saw themselves as the army that belonged to and served under a man. The devil wants you to see the challenges that are against you are coming against you as a mere man. David saw these and says, you're not defying us, you're defying the God who's in covenant with us. Saw it in same physical evidence. But because, now how did David get there? Where did David get that confidence? Because the man that wrote so many of these Psalms wrote them through the challenges and difficulties that he went through in some of them when he was a shepherd. And he watched God's faithfulness to him. When he was out in the wilderness with these sheep and a bear came against them, and a lion came against them, and he couldn't go get his armor, he couldn't go get his shield, he couldn't go get his sword. He had to trust the God who made a promise to him. And the wonderful Psalm 91, that is so often trusted in and looked to for protection, this is the man that wrote that psalm out of his experiences. David had learned to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God but he learned it by applying it in his day-to-day situations. And the challenges of our lives are often, we're often in situations like Israel at Canaan or Gideon against the Midianites or David against Goliath. They threaten to destroy us and with everything that has to do with them and with God. And Satan's simple strategy Paul says, don't be ignorant of his devices. And he also says, Satan has nothing he's come against you that's not common to man. In fact, I've learned that almost every device he has against me, I can find in Genesis 3. The same things he used in the garden. We ought to be smart by now and figure it out. We We ought to be like those areas where you go through there's some places I've gone through. I just know when I'm in a large crowd, there could be pickpockets in that crowd. And so I know what the pickpockets after is my wallet. So if somebody bumps against me, I don't get distracted by the bump. My hand's on my wallet. Because I know what he's after. But a pickpocket doesn't come up to you and says, excuse me, would you lift your hand up? Because I, you know, he wants to distract you to think the issue is something else. So the devil wants you to think you're the issue. You're not enough. You failed in the past. Who are you to think that you can lead your family and turn your marriage around and turn your children around or affect your house or your your work or your community? Who are you to think you can bring change or bring influence, God's influence into this? You've got failures after failures in your life. Satan's device 
is to get you to see yourself handling it on your own. Because then you'll think you're like a grasshopper in their sight, and you'll be a grasshopper in your own sight. But don't, 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 be, don't, be, dis, dis, uh, don't be fooled. The giants in Canaan were real. The Midianites were real. And Goliath really was 9 to 12 feet tall. But Israel failed because they failed to learn the lessons that God was training them in every day. So when the test came, they weren't ready. David saved his people because he saw Goliath in light of the covenant he had with God. And Gideon saved his people because he finally believed that he was a mighty man of valor, not in himself, but because God said, I will go with you. So, so how do you see yourself? How do you see yourself in light of what you're facing right now? Think about your family situation. Think about your children. Whatever it may be in your life that just seems so overwhelming to you. Think about it. That's the giant in your life right now. Here's what God has to say about you. We just talked about what the enemy will tell you. 2 Corinthians 5.7 says, If you're in Christ you are a new creature. If you are in Christ, you are a new creature. See, in the Old Testament, the ones we just read, God said, I will be with you. God doesn't say to us, I will be with you. God says, I will be in you. If he's with us, I may make a wrong turn and leave him at the, at the stoplight. But if he's in me, wherever I go, he goes. He is in me, and I am in him, we are one with Christ. And in Christ, you are a new creature. That means you're not the person that you used to be. You're not the person that Satan wants to keep bringing up to you. You are a new, your new identity is in Christ, which means whatever he is, that's what you are. Whatever he is, that's what you are. So when you look at those challenges of life, it's not you facing them alone. It's Christ in you facing them with you. I've changed how I pray over people. I used to pray, you know, well, in Jesus' name. And it's like, I said it so much, it almost had no meaning to me anymore. I've started to pray, Jesus in me speaks to this situation. And I feel a confidence when I say that. I don't feel when I say in his name. It's Jesus in me speaking to these situations. So 2 Corinthians 5.17, you're in Christ, you're a new creature. What else does God say about you? 1 John 4.4, 4, greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. That enemy that threatens you to destroy you, the one that lives in you is infinitely greater. In fact, the one that lives in you has already defeated him. Ephesians 3.20, my God, will do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that you can ask or think. Listen to this. According to the power that works in you. The power to overcome is already in you and is at work in you. Remember Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and has anointed me to bring this deliverance. That same Spirit that was upon Jesus to bring those deliverances from those situations, that same spirit is in you. He's not a watered-down spirit. 
It's not a smaller version of the Holy Spirit. It's the same Spirit. It's interesting because we often think that the first thing Jesus told his disciples to do was to go into all the world. No, it wasn't. Told them to go into the world. First thing he told them is wait. In Jerusalem, because with three years of training for me, you still don't have enough until you're endued with the same power that I had by which God did those things through me. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things, not through myself, through Christ who strengthens me. John 15.5, I want to read this. Get my fingers to work. Jesus is talking about that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. This is the image that Jesus used to communicate this. John 15, 5. I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I, he abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Without me or apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus just talked about, and he will continue to talk about in 16, unity, that he's one with them. And I had a teacher a long time ago said, you know, I believe what happened is they're walking out and they're going towards the garden and he walks past this vine, which is not like the vines we have here. It's not something that goes up the side of your building. It's like a tree. We'll use the tree as an example. He said, you know, I'm that vine, and you're a branch. I was meditating on this a few years ago, and I realized, wait a minute, a a branch does not have a separate identity from the vine. I've got a number of trees in my yard, and I don't look at this maple tree and say, there's a maple branch, and there's an oak branch over here. I say, that's a maple tree, because the branch has the same identity as the tree, because they're one. And Jesus is saying, your responsibility is to, is to continue and walk in that vital living unity that you have by being in me and I'm being in you. Because the vine produces the fruit through the branch. The branch cannot produce the fruit on its own because he's saying if you take the branch and you separate it from the vine, the branch cannot produce the fruit. So how does that come to bear to the challenges that are in our lives that God has placed us there to bring his kingdom influence into those situations? Because Jesus living in you, being one with you, has the ability to bring change. Jesus in you, his love, his grace, his peace, all the fruit of the Spirit, the things that apostles talked about earlier, that influence is Christ in you in those situations. And you are the branch by which that fruit is born through that branch so that others can eat of that fruit, of that peace, of that love, of that deliverance that he has for you. So how does what God says about us become more real to us than the challenges that we are facing? It's kind of like Israel. How does the reality 
of those, the, the, the giants not overwhelm the promises that God has made to them? How does the threat of the Midianites not overwhelm the presence of the angel what he said? Three things I'm going to mention to you, and they're all things you know about it. First of all, the only way this becomes real to you is by meditating on it. Meditating on what God says about you. Because you're meditating on something all day long anyway. And most of the time we're meditating on the problem. And we're meditating on well, how big the... And I learned this principle a long time ago. The more I think about something, the bigger it becomes in my mind. So the more I think about the problem, the bigger the problem becomes in my mind. I got to a point... Um, uh, uh, I was so tired this last year and so worn down by some things that I just didn't, I didn't use wisdom. Physically, I didn't use wisdom emotionally, and I just got worn down. And I knew we needed to, to, to get away. So we decided to take three weeks and get away. Well, for Christmas time, those of you that go to church know, for Christmas time, I got my wife a little puppy, Molly, this cute little puppy. What I wasn't thinking <laughs> is that it's like having a new baby in the house. You got to get up in the middle of the night with it. You gotta, and I was just was worn out. And now we're planning to go to Florida. What do you do with Molly? I mean, Molly's only three months old, four months old at this point. And so, well, my wife says, we can take her with us. I said, all right. Somehow, oh, in the meantime, I broke my wrist. So I got one hand, and now I got a dog. I got to take through security and all these situations. And it got so overwhelming to me. I, I, I couldn't function. Bec- and the more I thought about, how are we going to do this? It got s- so I got talking to a minister, a friend of mine, and he says, that's no big deal. I said, what do you mean it's no big deal? It's the biggest thing in my life right now. And I suddenly realized I'd spent so much time thinking about this and worrying about it, it was, it was bigger than a national disaster in my thinking. And the moment I saw that and I said, forgive me, Lord, your word says to be anxious for nothing, but in everything make my request, your word says, your word says, I just went back to the word, God began to provide answers. A family from church was traveling on the same flight, so they helped us, and things just fell into place. So the more you meditate on it, what God says, the bigger it becomes. And the goal is that you meditate on the word enough that it becomes bigger to you than the natural circumstances outside of you so that it doesn't move you and shake you. And you don't have to sit down in the morning and take an hour to do that. I do that all day long, riding in my car. If I wake up in the middle of the night, I've got these verses I go over in my mind. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. By the way, you do know how to meditate, because worry is meditation. If you can worry, you can meditate. So just start worrying about what God's Word says. What do you do when you, when you worry? You project what's going to happen. Well, this is going to happen, and that's going to that's mean this. Well, what if God's word's true? Project that. What if it really is true that Christ in me will, is the ability to overcome that? What if it's really true that that situation marriage can be turned around? What if it's really true that my kids can actually get their heads thinking straight? What if it's true that I can actually get a job? What if it's true that I really be seeing? And you begin to build, the Spirit of God can begin to build an image inside of you that becomes more real than that giant out there that's telling you'll be devoured. So that's number one. The second thing is you have to be purposely thankful about the things God had done for you. This is where, one of how Israel failed. They were ungrateful for what? They were ungrateful that they had a free meal every day. 
and they complained that they had to go out and pick it up. You see, when you get ungrateful, that builds in your mind also. We need to learn to be thankful for little things. So that whole trip down there, when I watched how God engineered things so that it was easy for us, for days afterwards, I still go back and say, God, I'm so amazed at what you did. I didn't know how to find a place to stay. It was the whole situation that I want to describe to you, but I, I could, it's like, and God, in one moment, opened up an opportunity. So that whole vacation, I'm walking around and saying, God, this is so amazing. What you've done here is so amazing. Because, see, I'm meditating on how big God is and how little the problems are compared to this big God. But you have to purposefully do that because we live in a very ungrateful culture, an ungrateful society, and often among ungrateful Christians. The third thing, and this is what's often harder for us, you've got to speak to the problem. The problem is speaking to you. It's telling you it's going to overcome you. It's like Goliath. I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to cut your head off. What did David do? We don't have time to go through the story. David spoke to Goliath. He says, before we're done, I'm going to have your head. And what happened? He had his head. But God, David didn't speak to him in his own confidence. He spoke in the confidence of what God had said. So you've got to speak to the problem. You've got to tell it what's going to happen. Talk to it. And somehow, you know, we, our mind thinks, oh, you can't do that. But you do it all the time. We speak to things all the time. This blasted zipper I can't get. This blasted thing, you know, whatever. we talk to things. Jesus in Mark 11:23 told us to speak to the mountain and tell it to be taken up and cast in the sea. God has placed you in your family. God has placed you in your community, in your church, in your job. God has placed you in difficult places. There's an old expression among pastors. Wouldn't it be great? Ministry would be great if it weren't for people. Yeah. But there would be no purpose for ministry if it weren't for people. Ministry is here because we're living among fallen people. Struggles. And we're living with an enemy that's out to kill, steal, and destroy, and is succeeding in many places. And we're here as God's answer, God's influence. But if you only see yourself as a grasshopper in your sight, and think you're a grasshopper in Satan's sight, God will never be able to do for you what he wants to do for you. And you will be like the first generation of Israel. God had to wait. And see, there was an entire generation of people that were affected by the fact that Israel did not learn what they needed to learn. So in the situations of your life, every day you have an opportunity to walk by faith, to grow in your faith, to apply your faith. The little faith that you may think you have, if you begin to apply it, it will begin to grow. And the more you apply it and you see God come through, the more your confidence in God and how big God is and what God wants to do. If you don't do that, then your problems will begin to grow in your own mind. Let's stand together. I want to pray for you and then we'll take our break. Father, as we men stand in this room together, we stand before you and acknowledge by our standing together I believe we acknowledge by being here today. We're saying we're here today. We could do so many other things on a Saturday. There are things we could do in our, around our house. There are things on television. There are things we could do. 
but we're here because somewhere down inside we sense that there's a purpose for our life that's beyond just going through and enjoying it. And Father, these are men that you have placed here because you want to bring your love, your kingdom's influence to a lost and dying world and even in to those that are in the church, in the family of God that are hurting. You want to bring your help and your deliverance. Father, only you know the Goliaths. Only you know the Canaanites. Only you know the Midianites that are in the lives of each one of these men here. Only you know that. But Father, you've placed them there not to be defeated, but you've placed them there that through you they will bring the change and the victory. And so Father, I pray right now but by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would begin to make them aware more and more of who they are in Christ and who Christ is in them. Satan, we take authority over you, over each one of these households, each one of these families, over each one of these men in the name of Jesus. And we declare the word of God is true over them. These are men of God. The spirit of the living God dwells in them. They are sons of, the God, of God. Just as much as Jesus was a son of God. And the same spirit that was in him is in each and every one of them. And Father, we just thank you in advance for all that will be accomplished through these men of God. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Praise the Lord.